This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Brian, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 454 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is David Gerald. He's the author of dozens of novels including The Man Who Folded Himself, A Matter for Men, and Jumping Off the Planet. He also wrote the classic Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. And his story, The Martian Child, was adapted into a 2007 film starring John Cusack and Amanda Peet. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new novel, Hella. And now here's our interview with David Gerald. All right, so we're here with David Gerald. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so your new novel is called Hella. So how'd this book come about? Well, there was a. It has an interesting background. I had uh, been thinking about. Uh, I love dinosaurs, and uh, I had been thinking about uh, world building a lot. And uh, a few years ago, there was a uh, pretty good TV show called Terra Nova. And uh, the point of that uh, uh, TV show was that the human beings were going back like 100 million years in time and setting up a new city there, a new settlement on the earth, but 100 million years ago. And so there were dinosaurs, and uh, but there were also some other things like the oxygen was richer. And so they got a lot of little details right. And uh, uh, then they set up a, uh, a really nice enclosure to keep the dinosaurs out. They had these big log fence, this big log fence around the, their little town. And uh, it really looked like the show had a lot of possibilities. It, it, it ran for one season and then the network canceled it, um, which is a shame. Now, my problem with the series was that they were focused on, I think, the uh, um, characters I wasn't interested in. I was more interested in the problems of world building, which I thought would have been a much more exciting series. But the part of the world building that they did do was very interesting, very exciting. But because I was frustrated that they didn't go in the direction I wanted to go, I was thinking, you know, let me do a story where I can actually tackle the world building problems. And this is this is a long answer. I apologize for that. But the thing about world building is you have to start at the beginning. What size star? What color is the star? Where is the star on its life cycle? Uh, how far out is the planet? Where's the Goldilocks zone? How big is the planet? How much is it tilted on its axis? What's the length of its year? What's the length of its day? What kind of seasons does it have? Uh, what's its atmosphere? Uh, does it have a molten core so it has a magnetic field? You know, and you... and eventually and then you get to the tectonics and you get down to what kind of continents and and what's the map and then 
you can start thinking about what kind of plants and animals will develop. And I put this planet, Hela, is bigger than Earth, but has a lighter gravity because it has a, a smaller metal core. And so it ha and because it has a richer oxygen atmosphere, it's possible for you to have megafauna, real dinosaur-sized creatures. And so once I had done that work, once I had that in my head, why I could establish that, why I could believe in it. See, that's for me, that's the issue is can I believe in this? And so um, I, I, I then I, I looked at, OK, so what's the story I want to tell here? And I wrote um, a couple hundred pages and uh, and 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 just trying to find, build the world. And then I realized that the narrator was neuroatypical, that Kyle has a syndrome, but he's functioning very well because he has some kind of implant, some kind of uh, chip in his head. And I thought, oh, okay, this makes him very interesting to me for a lot of reasons. And I wrote the the whole book, and but I wasn't really satisfied with the ending. And I sat there on my computer for a while because I had other things to do. And um, I don't remember what the uh, impetus was, but I went back and did a, a polish on it and submitted it to uh, Betsy Walheim at Daw Books. Oh, I know what the problem was. I had submitted it to Tor. And a year later, I said, are you ever going to respond? And they said, we never got it. So I sent it to them again. And they sat on it for three or four months and then said, no, we don't want it. Oh, man. So, uh, which is a shame because I thought it was turning into a pretty good book by then. <laughs> so I gave it to Betsy Walheim, and, who was delighted to get it. And she said, the ending needs to be stronger. And I went and rewrote a whole different ending to accomplish the same thing, but much more dramatic. And um, then we got the copy edited manuscript. And I made a few more corrections because people were, and my beta readers also, you know, what about this? What about that? What about the other? And the book finally got to press with only two or three typos and mistakes in it, which is pretty good for any book. Um, and of course, you don't find these out until after about 20 people have pointed them out, you know, after the book's been out two months. But um, uh, uh, that's pretty much how the book developed. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of it for a couple reasons. First of all, I, I'm pretty proud of the world building. It's very extensive. The funny thing is, I had to cut a lot of paragraphs out. Kyle does a lot of explaining. He's a very chatty little guy. And uh, some of the copy editors, one of the copy editors said, there's a little too much here. And uh, in reading through, I had to agree that Kyle's explanations of some of the details of the animal and plant life went on a little too long. So I had to trim some of that. And um, I was interested in it, but I don't think anybody else would have been. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, so, uh, um, I'm proud of it because I have a neuroatypical hero, uh, and a lot of, uh, readers have said, they're grateful for that. They finally have a book where they recognize themselves, where they actually feel represented in fiction. They're no longer invisible. Um, and uh, I'm proud of the world building and there's a couple paragraphs in there that, and I don't want to spoil them, but there's a couple paragraphs in there that I'm really, really proud of because I think I really got the characters right 
in those the one or two little things that happened. Uh, one, a couple with the villains, and a couple with uh, there's a character named Jimmy, who uh, this is a kind of a semi sequel to the Dingiliad trilogy, jumping off the planet, bouncing off the moon, leaping to the stars. So Chigger and Jimmy from that trilogy show up, and um, Jimmy has a paragraph towards the end that uh, where she says something, I'm not going to spoil it, where she says something so beautiful and so enlightened. I'm really proud of that. I realized it when I wrote it. So anyway, you have a question? <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's a, it's a terrific book. And I really like this, this genre of, um, you know, explorers uh, settling a, an alien world. It was really reminding me of, uh, of books I read, like Tunnel in the Sky by Robert Heinlein and the Legacy of Hay Wrote by Niven and Pornell and Barnes. Um, could you Those just talk were a little bit? Yes. Yeah. Could you just talk a little bit more about how this, um, where this fits into the sort of that tradition of settling alien worlds in science fiction? Well, yeah. There's not enough books about uh, colonization, and so you know, we may never. I've seen articles that suggest that faster than light travel and colonizing planets around other stars is simply beyond our technical abilities. I hope they're wrong, but um, as a thought experiment, going to another world and um, discovering what's different, it's a chance to consider how things are on this planet, too. Uh, Legacy of Herot by Niven and Pornell and Barnes is a brilliant effort. Uh, they had a lot of technical advice from Dr. Jack Cohen, who advised me on my war against the Tor ecology. So he helped them with the ecology of the Samlin on uh, that planet. And then when they did a sequel, you know, it's like what kind of critters would, you know, uh, be uh, predators on the Samlins. And uh, I thought that was uh, uh, remarkably well thought out. Um so uh, you can see the effort there to do some serious world building in an ecology. Um, and also uh, 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 when you get to Tunnel in the Sky, uh, Heinlein pretty much landed his people on a very Earth-like planet. Now, my theory is that there are no Earth-like planets. There's just lazy writers, <laughs> of which I'm one of. Um, I have a story called... Um, the Further Adventures of Mr. Costello. That's a very Earth-like planet, you know, <laughs> uh, because I was more interested in in the uh, human problem than the planet problem. But uh, a Tunnel in the Sky is really a survivalist story. How do you how do you survive, and what do you need? And Heinlein boiled it down to what you need is a knife, not a gun, not an attack dog, a knife. And um, I, I think that. Uh, um, he actually realized at some point that what you ultimately need to survive is partnership with other human beings, that individualism uh, is an illusion because tunnel in the sky, all the human beings on the planet, all the kids there have to get together and protect each other and work together to survive. And I think that's a very important point that, um, a lot of fiction misses. A lot of fiction is about the guy, you know, the hero goes in and solves the problem by himself. He's the big, mighty warrior. And while that's very exciting, 
Um, what we see in real life is that a lot of problems really get solved by teamwork and partnership. Yeah, I mean, one of the details I really liked in the book is that they're really careful about interacting with this alien environment. Even, you know, they, they want to be really careful about breathing the air and eating any food because of alien proteins and things. I feel like those are considerations that are, are sort of overlooked a lot in, in science fiction. Yeah, I use that in Hella, that uh, they're trying to find out what's safe and what isn't safe. And so, but everything is an experiment because all you need is you know, one fatal mistake and you wipe yourself out. So there's a lot of, te I implied a lot of testing and, and a lot, you know, we're wearing masks and we're, <laughs> who knew, right? And and there's a lot of, uh, they're wearing uh, suits when they go outside, but they've also learned that they have a, do have a certain tolerance, that there is an overlap of air, of survivability. And, uh, and I'm halfway through the sequel and at some point I will have to have that conversation that there is an overlap of survivability. Um, but we have a, a, a precedent for this. When the Europeans came to the New World, North America and South America, uh, it was two different ecologies. And, and so a lot of what was here on the American continents was alien to the Europeans, and a lot of what the Europeans brought was alien to the American continent. So we have feral pigs running amok uh, on the North American continent because um, pigs were not native to this side, and they they were an invasive species. In fact, most of the uh, we a lot of invasive species, particularly in Florida, where they have these. Uh, the snakes and the lionfish and the this and the that. In Australia, they have the problem with they first with the prickly pears and then with the rabbits and now the cane toads. Um, and and uh, uh, Europe is having a problem with uh, gray squirrels wiping out red squirrels and uh, I forget what else. Um, so the more that I discovered about invasive species then the story uh, of Hela became that human beings and everything we bring with us are invasive species. And I made this point when I blocked out the war against the Tor is that when you go and colonize a planet, uh, you don't arrive with Martian war machines and burn down the cities. You arrive with your entire ecology because you're, if you intend to live on that planet, you need your entire ecology. You need your microbes at the bottom level because the microbes um, handle the what goes on in the soil so that the plants you're going to bring with your corn and your beets and your turnips and you know and everything else their roots feed on what the microbes do in the soil and then you need uh, uh, all the uh, insects that pollinate your planets uh, your plants and then you need uh, the things that keep your insects in check. And you need your, you know, if you're going to bring chickens, you need things for the chickens to eat. And so you bring your entire ecology. And that's the war against the Tor is that this entire ecology arrives on the earth. And uh, and the flip side, Hela, is we are taking our entire ecology to uh, this planet, Hela. Well, well, right. And I mean, a big part of the story is that sort of the bad guys in the book kind of want to terraform Hela. And the good guys have a more protective attitude toward the local ecology. And I was just curious, sort of what if if you were able to direct a, a, the human settlement of another planet, do you have any thoughts about how far should we go in terms well, of? Well, I think there are two reasons. First of all, you don't want to 
uh, you want to protect the uh, Helen ecology so you can study it. You want to find out how it works because when you find out how Hela works, you're going to find out things uh, about evolution and ecology that we don't know. You know, Earth is uh, Earth is one system. Hela, with all of its differences in gravity and the the star is much more to the blue than to the yellow. And when you look at all the different uh, things that are at work on Hela, you'll find a lot of the same principles are at work. But at the same time, you're going to find some fascinating differences that you're not going to find any other way. So the colonists on Hela have to be very protective while they study the Helen ecology. Meanwhile, those who came who said, well, I'm, you know, there were people who came to America with the idea they're going to get rich here. This is the land of opportunity. They'll they'll claim 160 acres. They'll have a ranch. They'll have a farm. They'll do a this, you know, and they will be what they couldn't be in Europe. In Europe, there there was no land to settle to be uh, your own little uh, duke or baron or king. But here in America, after you have wiped out 100 million indigenous people with disease, there's all this unclaimed land. All you have to do is kill all the buffalo and so on. I mean, you know, the American history is ugly, genocide and slavery. But people came here saying, look at all that empty land. They didn't know they or or they thought they were entitled to claim that empty land. And the ecological disasters that we created, we have drained the Midwestern aquifer. We've created a dust bowl. We've done terrible things to the continent. Uh, we wiped out uh, hundreds of millions of bison. Uh, we wiped out the passenger pigeons um, because there was no sense of protection of the ecology. When you arrived, people just wanted to exploit it and get rich. So uh, I was looking at the colony on Hela from a uh, a different perspective. One of the reviewers on Amazon said that the book was woke, W-O-K-E. And um, my reaction to that is you say that like it's a bad thing. Like it's a bad thing to look at, to get outside the box you're living in and look from a different perspective. But that's what science fiction is about. Well, I guess another aspect that might have, you know, led that um, reviewer to characterize the book as woke is that um, a lot of the characters have switched sex or it's it's very common for character. It's common and sort of um, medically um, fairly easy, it seems, for characters to switch sex. And actually, speaking of Larry Niven, too, I mean, that was something that I saw a lot in uh, one of my favorite books growing up was The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton. And that's a world where it's it's pretty easy and common for characters to switch sex. And I feel like it's something you don't see a ton of in in Hollywood science fiction, um, but it has this, this, this pretty long tradition and Heinlein too, I guess with, you know, all you zombies, things like that, uh, this long tradition in, in literary science fiction. Uh, John Varley actually made it work better than anybody in his, um, nine planets series or nine worlds, um, which most of his books take place in that, in that environment. And uh, he would have characters change sex and be gender fluid and uh, uh, bisexual. And uh, and he did it casually and he didn't explain how it was done. And nobody called any attention to it. It was just part of the story. And I thought, oh, well, that's I could do that. That would you know, I'm, let me try that. And so I didn't explain how characters change sex on Hela. Um, I had an idea in my head, but I didn't bother to 
lay it out because I didn't want to get involved in the biology of it. Um, but uh, I figured it was, you know, it would just be uh, like uh, uh, John Varley's world. Once you have the technology, people are going to use it. And in fact, there's a, an old story, is a, a joke or trope that every new technology that we invent, eventually we find a way to use it for sex. <laughs> and in fact, we once played a game of, of people were thinking of, um, you know, all right, well, what about the electric light, honey? Let's do it with the lights on. That kind of thing <laughs> is, is like just about every, you know, uh, movies. Yeah, there's the invention of porn. Um, uh, the Internet. Yeah, there's the invention of sexting and so on. So um, that uh, uh, people, if we can turn something into a sex toy, we will. And uh, so I just assumed once the biology, the technology for, for physical adaptations is available, people will use it. And I, did, I just dropped it in as a, uh, it's not, I didn't think it was a big thing, but uh, some of the reviewers said, well, why didn't David spend more time on this? Why didn't David explain this? Why didn't, it's like, because it wasn't necessary to the story. The only part where it was necessary is Kyle is insecure emotionally. And so when he finally links up with Jeremy, he wants to know, how do I make Jeremy happy? This is a breakthrough for Kyle because he's never been thinking of how do I make someone happy? And I, you know, and telling it from Kyle's point of view, he's not going to discuss it that way. He's just going to, uh, uh, be so caught up in his own emotions, you know, one of the things, I have some experience uh, acting uh, as a, uh, you know, theater arts history. And so one of the things that we learn in theater arts is practice getting inside your character so that once you're inside your character, this is the method, which is, you know, it's kind of like a joke. Method actors get, you know, are so immersed in themselves, but no, the job is to get inside your character. What is your character thinking? What is your character feeling? Why is your character acting this way? And so once I had begun to get a sense of that skill, I brought it into my writing. So I write from inside my characters, which is why a lot of what I write is first person. And is that why is my character feeling this way? And so when Kyle meets Jeremy, he said he wants to make Jeremy happy. And, and because a lot of, there are a lot of, couples of all kinds on Hella, he wants to know what kind of a couple Jeremy wants to be. He says, do you want me to go back to being a girl? Like, um, and Jeremy is enlightened enough to say, "Do be who you are, not who I want you to be. Um, and that was the limit of the conversation. I mean, there's a whole iceberg under that conversation that I'm not going to discuss because it's implied in the tip of the, the tip of the iceberg implies the rest of the, the whole structure. And and one of the tricks I think a good writer does is try to imply as much as possible by saying as little as possible. And of course, the best example is Heinlein, the door dilated. And immediately you start thinking, well, why would you do a door that dilates? How do you do a door that dilates? What's the engineering on it? And obviously this, uh, uh, um, Technology is so advanced that a dilating door has some advantage over, you know, just the ordinary swing it open or slide it past or, you know, having it open automatically. But the door dilated tells you something about that world, even though Heinlein doesn't explain anything else about it. 
Well, so you, you mentioned that, you know, Kyle is really interested in uh, mechanical processes and it explains all these uh, things in great detail. And do you think that you would have figured out all those details anyway for any science fiction novel that you wrote? Or was there anything in this book that you only went into it in the level of specificity that you did because of Kyle's point of view and how he would talk about it? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think because I was inside Kyle's head and because the purpose of this story, one of the purpose challenges for me was some serious world building because I was tired of uh, writers going to Earth-like planets again and again and again. And no, I mean, the closest this, you know, Hela is the closest you're ever going to get to an Earth-like planet, <laughs> I think. Um, and even then I cheated enough to make it habitable, um, you know, uh, but the seasons are still serious and severe. And and so I wanted to demonstrate that the world building on this, uh, on Hela was, you know, was significant, that there is a lot of serious... Uh, stuff going on that humans have to be aware of. And Kyle became the avenue for that discussion. He became the access to that. But the more I got into Kyle's head, the more interesting it became to explore the world. So um, I think it's a, a synergistic uh, phenomenon that I wanted to explore the world. Kyle was the right character to explore it. The more I got into Kyle's head, the more I wanted to explore the world <laughs> from his point of view. And there are whole chapters about how um, the uh, predators stalk the er herds of uh, megafauna um, simply because Kyle was interested in that. Um, you know, once I postulate here are these giant herbivores, then there's also giant predators. And then I went to the behaviors of lions and wildebeest and jaguars and, and zebras. And, you know, I went to... Uh, um, all of the studies that I had, you know, all of those wonderful David Attenborough uh, documentaries too, you know, everything I knew about herd behavior and, and, uh, and evolution and how it all works. And Kyle got excited seeing how all of this was happening on Hella. And so there's long chapters on uh, long discussions of, uh, how the predators will pick off Whitefoot, who trails the rest of the herd. And she's serving an ecological purpose there by protecting the rest of the herd. Even though she dies, um, the rest of the herd has a chance to move far out of the range of the predator, you know, the big mouths following them. So, uh, yeah, uh, but that was Kyle. Uh, that was, you know, once I got inside Kyle's head and looked around through his eyes, I was oh, yeah. He's going to be aware of this, and this is how he's going to react to it. Uh, and, of course, the relationship of the other characters, uh, uh, the Leighton family and and particularly Marley Leighton, they came to life out of, you know, uh, they're, you know, high school bullies taken to the extreme. And they're not very nice people, uh, even despite the fact that they have to, you know, obey the rules of Hela, they're trying to change the rules. And uh, I think that's a normal behavior we see in human beings. It's not a nice behavior, but we see it a lot. Yeah, well, there was a line that jumped out at me. I'm seeing if I can find it. Um, but they, they're basically talking about the, the, the father of that family. And they say something to the effect of um, he's the kind of person who likes to make people argue with, with each other because when people are arguing with each other, it's easier to manipulate them. 
And it was yeah. kind of hard not to think about some recent political events when I read that. And I was just curious uh, to what extent that did recent political events uh, influence this story, if at all? Well, yeah, it, it's hard not to be aware of the behaviors, the bad behaviors of certain political actors. But I was never consciously implying any specific individual. Um, I know a lot of people have seen the parallels, but you can see the parallels in in Animal Farm and 1984 and Brave New World and, uh, you know, and Dune and so on. Uh, all of our great classic novels, anytime you portray uh, somebody who is abusing power, uh, you can look around and see there are people in the world today who uh, there's two, you know, let me do it this way. If you're uh, there's two ways to be a manager or an executive. One way is to say what's in it for me. And the other way is to say, how do I take care of the people? Uh, how do I take care of my people? How do I make it work for everybody? And um, I think really that is the dichotomy in our American politics today is a lot of people are saying, what's in it for me? How do I benefit from this? And a lot of people are, and, and on the other side, there are uh, people who are saying, how do we take care of all of us? And uh, um, I'm on the side of how do we take care of all of us? Because, uh, uh, there, you know, hell is a microcosm. We're producing enough for everybody to survive, but it only works if everybody works if everybody contributes. And, and so there, which I, I am told that's a very communist idea from each according to his ability to each according to their needs, which is a beautiful idea on, on paper, but it doesn't work in, in actuality. We know that, uh, uh, that communism doesn't work. But at the same time, when you're setting up a colony, you need to have everybody contributing something to the survival of that colony. And uh, because you you don't have resilience until you become successful enough. So, uh, uh, and you adapt your situation as your colony grows. So I, um, uh, I just try to, within that specific closed environment of this colony, show that they're already trying to, uh, they're already pulling themselves apart because they've become resilient enough to be able to do this. And then all of a sudden, the cascade, the starship arrives with a thousand new colonists, and you have this problem of, oh crap, we're not, we may be resilient, but this is going to break our back if we try to integrate a thousand new people into a colony of only, I think it was like seven or nine thousand people. Uh, all of a sudden, we are, you know, we're accepting this humongous burden. They're going to have to stay on that starship for a while longer. And uh, and that was one of the the uh, points too is that there's some serious logistical and mechanical problems of colonizing a planet, just as we have mechanical and logistical problems making our cities work. You know, uh, um, uh, how do we get enough food into the city so that people don't starve to death? Well, we need trucks and trains. You know, take away the trucks and trains, and you, starvation starts within a week. Um, so we have that, you know, Hela is a, a, a kind of a reflection of the world we live in. It gives us a way to look at our responsibilities to each other and how do we create a resilient economy and a resilient ecology. Uh, that, to me, is the subtext, the nuance underneath it all. Yeah, I mean, I thought the, the book was so – it really pays a lot of attention to logistics and procedures and all these things. I, I liked this line um, – 
when the character says, in real life, people don't punch each other to solve their differences. They talk things over and they keep talking and talking and talking until they find an answer or until one side or the other gives up. And I like, I mean, it's one thing that's really been bugging me in a lot of uh, TV shows I've been watching recently is this trope where the characters just have to have some sort of fist fight the first time they meet and then they become friends. And it's just, you know, like, like the, these, these, I've never, oh, I've never done that in real life. Never become <laughs> friends with somebody I had a fight with. <laughs> I mean, not a fist fight. Uh, there was a kid in junior high school who wanted to fight with me. And after, you know, he finally learned that wasn't going to happen. He, he and I were acquaintances for a while, but um, uh, never friends uh, because somebody who's capable of acting like a bully was like, you know, they're not going to give it up just because I'm their friend. Um, but I've never noticed in real life that people who start out hating each other become, you know, lovers or best friends or anything. Um, it's a good, you know, it's a, a movie trope. It's called the cute meat and and uh, where you have this this thing going on where uh, they're testing each other by having a fight. And once they know who's going to, you know, who's who's who by the fight, then they can be friends. Well, you know, I, I don't think friendship happens that way. That's a very weird view of friendship. Uh, and and what I've noticed is people talk each other to death. And, you know, you either say this person is interesting by what they're saying or you say, I don't want to deal with any more of this. And you walk away. And sometimes you're on the other side of it where you're so you're so damn self-righteous and so convinced that you are right, that you end up making other people wrong and you drive them away. Uh, once you learn that's not a good way to make friends, you stop doing it. But not a lot of us learn that easily. I think it's interesting that you mentioned reading the Amazon reviews of uh, of Hella. Um, so how do you feel about reading those reviews? Do you ever want to punch any of those people? Uh, <laughs> I mean, um, was there anything else in those reviews that kind of struck you? Well, let me do, say it this way. Uh, start this way. Ray Bradbury used to say, uh, God bless Ray Bradbury. He used to say, you have to learn to accept rejection and reject acceptance. And this is about reading reviews. Now, my attitude about reading reviews is what can I learn from the reader's reactions? Uh, the reader is not necessarily right in what they say, but their reaction, what, how they react, tells me something about uh, how they perceived the book. Um, and of course, once I'm done with the book and give it over to the reader, it becomes their book, their perception, their experience. And, and so it's a, it's, it's like a communication. It's not just what I'm saying. It's what they're hearing. Well, how about with, with Hella specifically, was there anything that sort of, like, what did you learn from the Hella oh, well, reviews? There was the, one, there was the one where the fellow said that the book was too woke quote unquote woke and you know is he is that a bad thing really um actually you know and that is like all right fine whatever um i think that reviewer told me more about himself than anything about hella <laughs> um but most of the time what i you know there was a, a an entertainer named ernie kovacs and one of the greatest reviews he ever got because he was doing television and he was making television do things that nobody had ever done before. 
And one of the reviewers said, Ernie Kovacs challenges his audience. You have to have a certain degree of literate literacy to get the joke that when he opens a copy of Camille, he hears coughing. You have to have a certain degree of, of literacy. He challenges you to be literate. And I thought that is a great goal. Um, I, I shouldn't have to explain everything. I should have the reader be a partner in the book. And so I want my books, I want my books to be accessible, but at the same time, I want them to challenge the reader to, to step up his or her game and, and to, be, uh, to be willing to accept this, this quote-unquote wokeness. So, um, yeah, uh, being woke is looking at things from a higher perspective. That's how I perceive it. If uh, somebody else has a different definition, they're welcome to it. But from my perspective is how do I step up this ladder and look from this higher point of view instead of getting so caught up in what is right and what is wrong, what is the process uh, what is the larger process everything is a part of? And Hella is about process. Well, speaking of uh, looking at things from a higher perspective, I wanted to ask you about this character, Harley, who's this AI character who I think you've been writing about this character for, for decades, right? Yeah, Harley has become a very useful. Um, he's a very useful character because he gives me, uh, because most of the stories he's in are written from first person. Uh, particularly the Dingiliad, the, the Jumping Off the Planet trilogy, um, he gives me a way to present a lot of information uh, because if you're writing from first person, you don't have to explain everything. You can say, this is how I experienced it, and you don't have to explain it. You don't have to explain the technology, which, you know, the science fiction of the 20s, 30s, 40s, even into the 50s, there was a lot of explanation how we're going to go to the moon or how we're going to do this, how we're going to do that. A lot of engineering. Well, I don't want to do the engineering. I mean, I'll do it in my head as much as I need to, but then I just want to show, not tell. And so uh, Harley becomes a very useful, there are times when he becomes Murray the explainer, but also he's a way to get things done without the hero having to suddenly be that 15-year-old super genius that is a, a convenient trope, but absolutely not functional because the 15-year-old super genius doesn't have the emotional maturity for a lot of the things that he's required to do. Uh, there was an episode of St. Elsewhere where Will Wheaton, was, he was about 15 at the time, plays the super genius doctor. And the first time he has to do a breast examination, all he can do is stare because he's a 15-year-old boy. He's never seen breasts before. So which was brilliant on the part of the producers, Tom Fontana. So um, I, 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 Harley provides this extra way of looking at things for these young characters. And the interesting thing about Harley is that at some point, somebody realizes whenever Harley shows up, he's going to topple a government. <laughs> and, and because uh, he has his own agenda, Harley is sentient and self-aware, and um, he says, this is not going to be good for my survival. I'm going to undermine it. And humans become a way for him to do that. So that, you know, and I recognize that about Harley uh, probably uh, well into the second book in the De Gilead trilogy, that Harley was going to make a mess wherever he showed up, which was a very convenient way of not having to have my heroes in the story be the sole actors on the situation. 
Because if you look at the world we live in, none of us are the sole actors on our lives. We have circumstances hammering on us from all directions. The rent comes in. We have to go to the store and buy it. You know, got to go to the doctor. You know, uh, the car needs of this. We have all these circumstances we have to deal with. And there are other people who are actors on our lives, teachers and bosses and, and partners and, and children. You'll notice not a lot of science fiction stories deal with families. And this is one of the areas that I'm kind of proud of that I've started to move more into the area of family relationships. Um, so uh, Harley is Harley is an agent of chaos, and I recognize that. Well, speaking of teachers and things, I, I've heard you say that Harlan Ellison was a mentor of yours, and Harley sounds uh, a lot to me like Harlan. I was just wondering if there's any connection there. Um, I, I think at the time I was having a little fun um, by creating a uh, character who was a little bit like Harlan, but because uh, uh, Harlan could be an agent of chaos, too. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, as I developed the character of Harley, he is nothing like Harlan. Um, but we had some fun. Bob Block was Toastmaster at one of the Nebula banquets, and he was making a lot of jokes. And he mentioned, and, and, and I was so pleased to actually be one of his jokes. He said, uh, and then there's this new book, When Harley Was One. Harley, of course, claims he isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a good laugh out of that. And I thought, whoa, Bob Block noticed me. He noticed my book. How cool. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, uh, there was a certain small amount of reference to Harlan, but not, nothing serious. Uh, the, uh, if I was going to go after Harlan, I was going to be much more direct. Uh, I did a, uh, um, a piece, uh, uh, one of the books, uh, and I forget which one, but, I, uh, it was a tribute to Harlan. I wrote 7,000 more words about Harlan Ellison and, uh, uh, in it, I, I began with once upon a time, I was very angry at Harlan and I wrote this and I, and I included, you know, about, I, I don't know, a thousand words of, of how Harlan was really a munchkin who had been kicked out of Oz <laughs> and, and he was a munchkin in a land of Dorothy's and, uh, went on at some length about how he's bitter and said, and then I concluded that piece by saying, I was really very angry at Harlan now. Let me tell you the truth about Harlan as I experienced it. And so, so I got a chance to use that, that piece that I had written about Harlan uh, for myself and then used it to stand on it to, to, to go on and talk about why I admired him so much. But Harlan wasn't my only mentor. I had uh, Theodore Sturgeon taught me a lot about a voice. And James Blish taught me four words. Who does it hurt? That's who your story's about. And uh, 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 Annie McCaffrey uh, and Dorothy Fontana, and in particular Joanna Russ, who who taught me about feminism in a way that nobody else could. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I think the entire field of writers that I was privileged to grow up with, as well as finally meet them in person, they all functioned as I want to be worthy of their respect. Uh, because they have shaped who I am, and they've shaped the way I perceive the world. And so, uh, in a sense, most of the better writers in science fiction were my mentors. They were the, they set the standard of excellence. They set the level um, that I aspired to. And it's like this is this is the target. <laughs> yeah, well, because when I was just as I was doing research for this, I noticed that your novel, The Flying Sorcerers, which you wrote with Larry Niven. 
Uh, David Langford says that it set a record for over-the-top Tuckerizations. So you you must have been pretty involved in the science fiction field and, and known known all these people, or? Well, we were having some fun, and and we probably did go over the top. James Blish faulted us for too many of these Tuckerizations. He says enough is enough, gentlemen. In his review, and. Um, but, you know, for the fans, for the readers, it was a great game. The readers didn't complain. They said, oh, we're trying to, we can't figure them all out. Who was this? Who was that? I don't even remember who they all were anymore. Um, but um, uh, the, the, it started, uh, ironically enough, James Blish wrote a wonderful novel called Black Easter, and he named all of the uh, priests in this particular monastery after other science fiction writers. And I thought, what a great gag. <laughs> Let's steal it. <laughs> so you know it's like yeah so what um i i did not take we were having so much fun with the flying sorcerers we probably got silly but you know what um the readers had a great time with the book and and uh, uh that was the important thing is i wasn't interested in you know competing for the hugos at the time i just wanted to write a good book um, and one of the lessons I think that any writer has to learn is to give up the Hugo hunger or the Nebula hunger and, and stop campaigning and just get out there and uh, write the best story you can and and wait to see how the audience responds because the audience response is going to be one of the fastest ways you're gonna you're gonna learn your craft. You know if they if you get a dozen reviews that say it's got a good beginning and a good ending, but it sags in the middle. They're telling you something you need to learn about how to pace the middle of your story. So a lot of my entire career has not been about what I know, but what I need to learn. And and so I was teaching screenwriting at Pepperdine for tw nearly 20 years, and I've done writer's workshops before and after that. And it's always, what can I learn from ex looking at structure again and again? And even now, I'm doing a Patreon uh, course called The Right Stuff, W-R-I-T-E, The Right Stuff. And we've got about 25 people participating in it. And every week when we examine a specific distinction about the craft, somebody brings something up and I learn something new about writing. And so the goal is to... Uh, it's, it's like that old Woody Allen thing, you, you know, as, as long as the shark keeps moving forward, it, it, it survives. <laughs> and I don't want to be the dead shark, you know. It's like, what else can I learn? What's the next challenge? What can I try that I haven't tried before? Um, so I can point to almost any book I've written and tell you, here was the specific challenge in that book, in that story. So, yeah, there have been a few throwaways here and there. You know, somebody needs something in a hurry. But... Most of the time, it's like, what's the challenge here? What can I learn from taking this on? Yeah. So unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. So just to wrap things up, uh, you mentioned that you're working on a sequel to Hella. So is there anything you want to say about that or just any other projects you want to let people know about? Uh, I try not to talk about work in progress because when you do, you uh, evaporate a lot of the emotional energy. Um, and uh, uh, so... The emotional energy has to go into the keyboard, not into a discussion. Um, I will, I, you know, I'll let people know that the book is in progress, but I won't, I won't discuss the details.
Okay. Well, no, but I'm, yeah. So uh, why don't we wrap things up there then? But, uh, everyone definitely check out this book. Hella is just this really, really detailed look at what it would actually be like to settle an alien world. Uh, probably in more detail than any, any, uh, comparable treatment I can think of. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, definitely check out Hella by David Gerald. And so David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. It's been fun. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to David Gerald for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening. 